Well, good morning, everybody. Um, this is, <laughs> I'm Caleb. Yeah, you heard it. All right, this is week four of a series about this. Let's fall in love with his word. And you saw that quote at the very end of that video that the number one catalyst to grow spiritually. And what, I'm, what that means is like there's a point where you begin to follow Jesus. But then you have a whole bunch of life after that. And God's purposes within that is that you would continue to grow to become more like Jesus, to understand him more to have a deeper relationship with him, to represent him more in the mission he's called us to in the world. But the number one catalyst for that movement of our life from kind of new birth in Christ to maturity is being someone actively engaged with the Bible. And yet, as we talked about way back on January 8th, for the most part, the church in our culture has become very disengaged from the Scriptures. And so why is there this kind of contradiction that's lived amongst many of us as followers of Jesus that we would say, I believe the Bible is God's Word and I decided not to read it. Like how can we live into that? How can we address that contradiction? And so I would encourage you, if you're new here, I'm so glad you're here. It is wonderful to have you here. If, if you've just started coming in the last couple weeks, I encourage you to connect with this whole series. This is the fourth um, the fourth week of this. So week one, we talked about the reality that we can trust the Bible. So some of us, we've quit engaging with the Bible because we saw a TikTok video or a YouTube video that somehow caused us to start to question if the Bible is really trustworthy. And week one was a phenomenal job by Pastor Tyler of laying out why we can really trust the credibility of the Bible. Week two, well, why don't we engage it? Sometimes we just don't think we need it. We don't think we need it. We think we can live a perfectly good life as good people, accomplishing good things without the use of the Bible. In week two, we saw, no, we can't. We can't live the life that God calls us to without the Scriptures. We need it in order to live this life with the right understanding, the right worldview, the right uh, way of communicating to others what Jesus is like. And then the last two weeks are really just dealing with this reality. Well, I don't get it. So yeah, I trust it. Maybe I recognize I need it, but what if I don't get it? So last week we talked about how do we get the most out of the Bible. So encourage if you weren't here, go check in with that. And this week we're going to cover the whole Bible in 30 minutes. (laughs) God help me. All right. So what you're going to experience this morning is a little different than your normal Sunday if it's your first time here, if you're a guest with us. All right, I, I'm a primarily, my ministry I, I lead is a Bible training ministry called Emmaus, and we run courses for Christians that want to engage deeper with the Bible. And that's, again, you can connect with me on that at some other time. Today's going to be a hybrid of that world and our River Run world together, is we're going to take 25, 30 minutes and fly over at 30,000 feet, maybe higher than that, but we, maybe 60,000, all right, all right. Fly over the story of the Bible, the big story that it tells. Because while it's 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years by multiple different authors to people in different situations, it's all woven into one big meta-narrative, a massive story arc that the Bible tells. And so something that can help us engage the Bible is knowing what is that big story arc that covers the span of the biblical, biblical narrative. Um, so we're going to do that this morning. And I uh, just want to let you know, uh, we'll be hitting, you'll see a timeline on here or up on the screen a little as we go. That will be available on our Facebook page um, after service today if you want to download that and look at it more in like a PDF form. So you can check out that there. But I'm going to pray and everyone buckle in. All right. And you're about to hear the whole story of the Bible in just a few minutes. All right. God, um, this is your word, and I feel a, a reverence of you in the reality that over the next few minutes, 
I'm handling your story. It's yours. And these are your people. And so God, I pray that I would get out of your way and that you would highlight for each one of our hearts the parts of the story that we most need to continue to take our next step in relationship with you and in engagement with the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would be with us right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I'm going to tell this kind of in storytelling format, and there'll be words on the screen here, and then the timeline will be up on the big screens as well. You can track along with me. And your worship guide, the keywords are in there as well. So let's go ahead and get started. All right. So the story of the Bible starts where any good story begins. Where does the story begin? In the beginning. Yes, at creation. And you're going to follow this timeline as we go. So the very first piece is creation. So here's what I want you to know. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, the cosmos. All the way down, He creates this earth, and everything is goodness, and He creates a garden and sets human beings as His image bearers in relationship with Him in the midst of this garden. And two big ideas I want to leave you with from the creation is that all creation is created as God's goodness. It's good, which means it's as God designed it to be. And the life of the humans is blessed with something called peace. Things are working as they ought to work. Peace with God, that they're living in this garden in communion with God, with nothing separating that relationship. They're living in a life marked by peace with one another, no hostility and conflict. Peace with creation. They just eat from the gardens, the garden that grows up, and they don't have to go out there and toil and work it. So creation, God's goodness, God's good world as He designed it. He defines it. And a life marked by peace. Shalom. Peace with God. Peace with one another. And peace with creation. But then by Genesis 3, boom, it all breaks. All right, in the fall. The next slide there. In the fall. So Genesis 3 through 11 kind of details how did the world get to how it is now? In 3 through 11 of Genesis, we see in Genesis 3, a serpent comes, tempts Adam and Eve, the first humanity, to say, hey, you know what? Instead of, instead, of, instead of obeying what God defines as good and evil, what if you were in charge of it yourself? What if you decided what was good and evil? So they give in to that temptation. They rebel against God. They decide, I want to be in charge of what's good and what's evil. And when they do, they eat the fruit. And you may know the story. Everything breaks. When they reject God's definition of goodness, they shatter the peace they've been given because of it. They shatter that peace. And all that peace they were given in the garden breaks apart. And in Genesis 3 through 11, it all unravels. The, the relationship with God now is no longer peaceful. It's marked by shame and, and withdrawal from God because I'm sinful and I'm guilty. So what will I do? The relationship with each other as humans is broken. As one chapter later in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve's own two sons, one of them murders the other in hatred and hostility. And that breaks apart. And peace with creation breaks apart. And they can't live in this garden of peace and blessing anymore. And humanity now lives in the midst of a world that is broken. And as you move to Genesis 11, the goodness that God has designed has been rebelled against. And the evil that man creates has been built. And the peace that God gives has been shattered. And all humanity, by Genesis 11, lives in the midst of something called Babel. You ever heard of the Tower of Babel? The word Babel means chaos. Chaos. And this chaotic world of brokenness, of rebellion against God, is what we have in Genesis 11. And that's meant to tell us, that's the story of the world. That's how it got to the way it is. But in Genesis 12, God's desire to restore it. You know, one of the, the title I'll give to the whole story of the Bible is this, that the Bible is a story of a faithful God pursuing unfaithful people with His love. Amen. 
a faithful God pursuing unfaithful people with his love. So Genesis 11, it's like, hey, humans ruined it all. God just burned it up. And instead, God works this redemption plan beginning with one of these people of Babel, of the chaos, a man named Abraham. And we see this to begin and develop through this idea of covenant. Covenant. And what we see in the covenant, you'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that God shows up to this guy that's in the midst of this world of chaos and brokenness and darkness because of rebellion against God. And he says, hey, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And I have a promise for you that I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation. And all this world of chaos and brokenness, all the nations will be blessed through your family someday. So Abraham believes that God will do this promise. And a covenant is an important word in the Bible. A covenant means an agreement to be faithful. An agreement to be faithful. And these biblical covenants hinge on two things. God makes a promise of something he guarantees. And he remains faithful to that. And the human beings trust in what God has promised. And so they remain loyal to him as their only God. And so the story moves forward. Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and they become from one individual in a covenant relationship, a faithful relationship with God. It begun, begins to be a huge tribe full of people as Jacob has 12 sons, and they grow and they grow. The next major part of the story picks up about 400 years later, where this family of Abraham has now become a nation's worth of people, thousands and thousands of them. Hundreds of years later, through all the, child, the children they kept on having and kept on having, but the problem is that they, though being a great amount of people, are living as slaves in the land of Egypt. The greatest world empire, the most powerful being on earth in Pharaoh, rules over them as a harsh taskmaster, and they can't escape no matter how hard they try. They're beaten and bloodied. They are oppressed, and they are experiencing the chaos and brokenness of this world, but dropped right on top of their own heads. And in the midst of that, they look to the God who's made a promise to bless them as a people through Abraham. And they say, God, help. Remember that, because that's how we usually cry out to God too. God, help us. God who made this promise. We trust in you. We need you to help. And so God does. And the Exodus story is a story of God sending a, a, a servant of his named Moses to rescue and redeem his people out of their slavery. And, and if you read through the rest of the Bible, you'll find that this moment in the storyline, when you read the book of Exodus, is the gospel. That's the gospel, the good news of how God saves his people all the way up until the cross becomes the new good news of how God saves his people. What, what happens here? Well, think about it. God rescues them from their slavery by conquering their great enemy who holds them enslaved, Pharaoh. He delivers them from it. He rescues them from death. That the blood of the lamb marks the doorposts of their houses according to what God tells them to do. And they are saved from death. And then God takes them out of their Egyptian slavery and marches these people through the, through the, the Red Sea, through the waters. The waters part. They go across. They look back. And all of Pharaoh's army, the army of Egypt, the most powerful army in the world, is destroyed, is wiped out. And they've come through these waters and now they can never go back to Egypt again. They have a new liberated existence. They're free. They're free. And for 400 years they've been slaves. They've never known what freedom is, but now they have. Why? Because they cried out to God and God saved them. Amen. God saved them. 
So these new people uh, are now, the, the family of Abraham is now the nation of Israel, but they have no land, they have no laws, they just have been rescued, and they're out in the wilderness. So God marches them to this mountain in this wilderness, the Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the next thing on here. And, and as you see here, it's kind of highlighted as we follow the storyline. God brings them to Mount Sinai. And if you're writing down notes, you should write this down. If not, listen back later. When God rescues people, he doesn't just rescue them. He rescues, he redeems them for relationship with him. And so they come to Mount Sinai and God gives them relationship. He gives them these two incredible gifts of laws. We all love laws, all right? laws and the tabernacle. But here's what that is, is that the God who rescued them says, hey, here are my ways. We're going, think back to the garden. Here's how I define what is good and what is evil. And if you'll trust me, you'll experience peace. You'll experience peace with me and peace with one another and peace with creation. If you'll trust me. And not only does God give them that gift of his ways, but he also gives them the gift of his presence that God makes a, a concrete movement to be back again together with his people as the tabernacle is constructed. That God tells them to build this tabernacle. And when they do, God moves in. And they know that because the glory of God that's up on this big mountain moves inside and fire shows up over this tent and they go, wow. Everyone say, wow. All right, good. You sound very like the Israelites. That was excellent. All right, they say, wow. You know why they say, wow? Because that fire lets them know that this is where God lives in the world now. And he's right here with us. He's among us. And we're a different kind of people. Because not everybody has God's presence and not everybody knows God's ways, but we do. And not everybody's been rescued from their slavery, but we have been. So God gives them the gift of relationship and he gives them the purpose of mission. He says, if you'll walk with me, if you'll walk in my ways, then the world's going to look on and see the peace that you have that they don't have. See the goodness you walk in that they don't walk in. And the world will say, who is this God that I might follow him as well? And so over the next 40 years, spoiler alert, they screw this all up. For 40 years, then that generation gets to the border of the land that had been promised long ago to Father Abraham. And they say, we're scared. We don't think God can do this. And so for 40 years, they wander around the wilderness complaining and grumbling and saying, God, you're not good enough. God, you haven't done enough. God, I don't think you'll take care of me tomorrow. Even though you rescued me from Egypt. What in the world, right? But we do the same thing. But ultimately that 40 years ends and Moses looks at the next generation of Israel. They're going to now go into the promised land, the land of Canaan. A land with many different peoples and tribes and gods all throughout it. And Moses stands on the border, looks at them and says this, remember and obey. Remember and obey. He offers them, he tells them, hey, there's two ways you can experience this life from here on out. You can either remember what God has done. And if you remember, you will trust him. If you trust him, you'll obey him. If you obey him, you will experience blessings or to use our word we've been using, peace. But the other path is this, that you will forget God. You'll get in there, you'll build these nice houses, you'll have nice crops and herds, and you have your kids and have your career, and you will say, look what I built for myself, and you'll forget all about God. And if you forget God, you'll start trusting in other things. If you trust in other things, then you'll choose to disobey Him. And if you do, then you'll experience curses, is the Bible word, or we'll just say chaos and brokenness. 
And so they enter the land. The next generation, Moses dies. The next generation enters the land. They go into the promised land. And God does really good and they do kind of good. God does really good in that he's driving out the other people from the land, the enemies that have done so much wickedness. And he's giving the land to his people. And he's doing all this, but the people are kind of doing good because they start out obeying. But ultimately, once they get some cities, they think, this is good. We don't want to keep on driving the people from the land. And so they stop partway through their obedience. And that means that now this family of Abraham, who's now the nation of Israel, are living in the land of Canaan, as God had promised. But they're living among many other peoples. And all those peoples have different idols, have different ways of defining good and evil. And so there's now a war at place for their hearts. And they don't do well. The next thing that happens is a rebellion in the land. In fact, when, when that generation starts to die off that came in the land, it says in the book of Judges that the next group that grew up, all those kids, they didn't know about what God had done to save them from Egypt. They didn't know about the relationship God had established at Mount Sinai with them. They didn't know about all God had done. They forgot. And so we know how the story goes if you forget. And this rebellion in the land, it just 400 years long, shows the destructiveness of sin. If you read the book of Judges, you'll see this, that they, they just completely self-destruct. They wreck everything in the promised land. And ultimately, at the end of this rebellion, they look at God and say, we don't want you to be our leader. We want a person to lead us like the other nations have. Give us a king like the other nations. Instead of being a mission, missionaries to the world, the world has evangelized them and they want to become like the rest of the world. So they reject God as their king. And that moves us into the next phase, this united kingdom. In this united kingdom, God, first, they get the king they ask for, a man named Saul. And this Saul ends up looking just like the people do. He defines good and evil for himself. He rejects God's leadership, and he ends up feeling the chaos within, and he creates chaos around him and brokenness all around him. And Israel is experiencing being attacked from all sides, afflicted by the Philistines, all kinds of battles and problems going on. Why? Because they are defining good and evil for themselves. They're rejecting God and they're getting the natural results of that. But then God sends them a king they don't deserve, King David. And King David is God's chosen one, chosen king. The Bible tells us he's not like others. He's a gift of God's grace to a rebellious people. He's a king sent by God who has a, he was a man after God's own heart. That means he follows God's leadership. He lets God decide what's good and evil. And guess what? David screws up big time. But when he does, he does what someone does who sins but trusts in God. He repents. He cries out like Israel, help. And God forgives him and meets him with his mercy. And with King David, there's another major point in the story is not only has God said, I'm going to bless the nations through the family of Abraham, but God says, all the nations are going to be blessed by a king who will come from David's family line. And so we're watching David's family now for the king that all the nations would look to as their king, as their savior as well. David's son Solomon also has a united kingdom, but soon after that, right after Solomon, once again, unfaithful people. Unfaithful people produce a divided kingdom. Divided kingdom. That 40 years after King David dies, Israel breaks into civil war and they're killing each other in battlefields as they define good and evil for themselves and they reject God. 
And at this point now you end up, if you're reading through the Bible, you'll start to hear these words, Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. Well, why does it say that? Well, because 10 of the tribes of Israel, of the 12 that were there, 10 break away and reject David's family as their king. They reject the temple that Solomon had built where God had also moved in. And they start their own thing, building idols to worship God instead and choosing their own king like the nations have. And for a long time after that, hundreds of years, they create all kinds of chaos in this northern kingdom called Israel. Two of the tribes, they remain in the southern kingdom. They hold to the line of David. They still go to the temple where God says to go to worship their God. And the tribes of Judah remain faithful. Now, when I say faithful, I don't really mean faithful. I mean, here's their life, all right? Here's their life. Some faithful kings, some faithful times, and other times of rebellion. And so they kind of run like this. The northern tribes just go straight downhill. And ultimately, that results in exile. That again, just like the Garden of Eden, when humanity looks at God who gives them an offer of his way of good and evil, and they spit in his face and choose to be their own gods, they create death and destruction and chaos all around them. And that's exactly what we see in the story of the Bible. That the northern kingdom of Israel, they end up in 722, they end up eventually destroyed. God has been calling out to them to say, hey, come, I want to rescue you. Please just say help again. Just say help and I'll rescue you. And they don't. Over and over they look to themselves and they look to other things. But they never look to God and ultimately they are destroyed by this big world power called Assyria. Assyria comes in and decimates this whole northern part of the land of Canaan. He destroy, they destroy them. Many of the Israelites are killed by the massacre of many of the Israelites at that time. The others, most of them are taken from the land and scattered all over the known world of those days. And this is where we get the idea of the lost tribes of Israel. And they're scattered all over. And, and now all that really remains is the southern kingdom of Judah. But a hundred and something years after this, 140 years later, the southern kingdom also has continued to choose their own way and rebel against God. And ultimately, they also end up being conquered by a nation called Babylon, a new world empire. And they, when that happens, the, the current king from David's line has all his sons executed in front of him. That his eyes are gouged out that that would be the last thing he ever sees. The temple of Yahweh, of God, of the Bible, is torn down to the ground. The city of Jerusalem is burned up. And most of the remaining people of Judah are marched off to be, uh, to be exiles in the land of Babylon, hundreds of miles away. And so again, that must be the end of the story of the Bible. But the story of the Bible is the story of a faithful God pursuing unfaithful people with his love. And the reason we know there is still hope in the midst of this is because of the centerpiece, the prophets. As you see on your timeline when you look at that later on, that all during this time, as, as Israel and as Judah are saying, no, we want to do our own thing. God sends these messengers called his prophets through which he speaks to his people. And three major messages. He says, repent through the prophets. Look, look at how God told us to live. What he said was good and evil. But we're choosing evil. We need to repent, which means turn our hearts back to God and return our behaviors to the way he says is good. And then the second thing they do is the messages of warning. To say, hey, if we don't, look at what we're experiencing. It's chaos. 
And more chaos and more destruction is coming. So let's repent. Return our hearts to the Lord and return our behaviors to what he says is good. But they reject that. They reject that and end up in exile. But the last thing the prophets say is messages of hope. That through the prophets in the Old Testament, and many of your books in the Old Testament are the prophets, as you read those, you'll hear words of hope. That what God is saying is, look, even when you have destroyed everything, even when you've chosen the path all the way to exile, there is still hope in me. Because I am not going to break my promise even though you break your faithfulness to me. I continue to pursue you with my love. And those promises hinge on a few different things. One is, someday they're going to get back to that land. Secondly, someday there would be the great king who would come, the Messiah who would come to save them. And that there'd be a new covenant that what they've been unable to do because stone tablets and paper laws couldn't get into their heart, God was going to do for them when God's Spirit would place His law right within the hearts of His people. And so now they wait. And they begin to experience it uh, not long after that as they get the return. And a small part of the Jews are given an opportunity to go back to the promised land and rebuild again. So they get there and they start to rebuild. They rebuild their city. They rebuild a kind of temple. The city's kind of good, but it's nothing like it used to be. They start to relearn the law. And now they're thinking, okay, we're back in the land. I can't wait till our king comes to rescue us from our enemies, to give us a great kingdom again like David did, and to bring us peace. I can't wait for that. And I can't wait for a covenant that comes in our hearts. But as the Old Testament ends, it ends like that. With a tension between, hey, God has started to fulfill His promise, but we're still waiting for our great King, and we're waiting for this new covenant in our hearts. And that moves us into the gap between the Old and New Testaments. Now when you get there, you open your Bible, you'll turn, it'll say, the New Testament. Right? Anybody ever just read that page? Just, wow, what a powerful page. Just kidding. It's a blank page in our Bible. But between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, there's actually 400 years. Now I have no time at all to talk about that. So here's what I'll say. 400 years of unmet expectations for the Jews. Our king doesn't come yet. And our life doesn't change yet. Our circumstances don't change. And our life is still marked by a lot of chaos. The whole world around us is changing, but our situation seems to stay the exact same for 400 years. Unmet expectations, disappointments in those who seemed like maybe they were the king we're waiting for, but disappointment. And so as that 400 years ends and we move into the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, I want you to know this. What is created in the Jews is a skeptical hope. That yeah, we still have these promises we're clinging to, but we're skeptical on whether the Messiah is ever going to come. And we're skeptical when anybody says, there's the Messiah, we think, I don't know about that. We've been disappointed for 400 years. And into this world of skepticism, of 400 years of longing, of brokenness and chaos and disappointment, in walks Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus steps into the scene, the Messiah comes, and you end up, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see a collision of two realities. Jesus is the king, and he's come to bring the kingdom, but it's not meeting all the expectations of the Jews. See, he's come to overthrow their enemy, and they think, oh, the dirty, rotten Romans, our current oppressor. But Jesus says, no, go ahead and pay taxes to Rome. 
I've come to conquer sin in your hearts. Go ahead and pay taxes to Rome. I've come to overthrow the evil one, the serpent from the garden. They're waiting for prosperity for him to come and say, hey, we're going to bring in all the gold and we're going to set up a big palace and we're all going to rule over all the other world. And he says, no, no, no. I've come to give you a greater prosperity, a prosperity of the heart, which is the peace from the garden. I've come to do this. But you see in the Gospels an ongoing tension between this great miracle worker whose many are thinking is the king, but other Jews who are saying, well, but he's not doing what we want him to do. And he's not meeting our expectations. He's not giving us all the, the prosperity we want. He's not overthrowing the Romans. He isn't meeting our expectations. So that tension ultimately results in the rejection of Jesus by the majority of the Jews and the execution of Jesus under the influence of the leadership of the Jewish people. And when we read about the Messiah, we read it in the Gospels. And that's the start of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different books, which are, uh, gospel means an announcement of good news. All four books announce the good news, that the king has come. Here is his life. Here is his teachings. Here is his death. Here is his resurrection. And it lays that out for us in the gospels. But at the conclusion of Jesus' life, he dies and then he's resurrected. And the gospels tell us that after he's resurrected, for 40 days he hangs out with his disciples. If they've ever had questions before on whether he's the guy, this is proof he's the guy. You saw him dead and he's not dead anymore. And for 40 days he spends time with the disciples, explaining to them what it means to be part of his kingdom and what he has come to do. And then he leaves. In the ascension, Jesus says, all right, see you later. And they're like, what? No! Right? And Jesus ascends back to go be with the Father. Before he does, he says, hey, it's good for you that I leave because there is a great promise coming to each of you. Wait on the gift the Father has for you. And when you receive this gift, you will be my witnesses to tell the rest of the world that the Messiah has come, the Savior has come, the one who rescues from chaos and restores peace, the one who, who conquers evil and restores goodness. He's come. So they wait. They wait. And the next piece of the story happens not long after that, the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, uh, 120 of these followers of Jesus are all hanging out saying, whatever it is, we want, we want it, we're waiting. And all of a sudden, the Father pours out the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, into the followers of Jesus. And when that happens, we say God dwells in His new temple. That what happened at the tabernacle, you remember where Israel thought, where does God live? Where the fire is over that tent. We know God has decided that's where he lives in the world. And now on the day of Pentecost, they look around this room and there's a former tax collector and a former prostitute and a fisherman and, and a former beggar and a guy that was blind and uh, poor not too long ago. And over all their heads, these little flames of fire appear. And it's not just a wow moment. It's a wow. Everyone say wow. wow. All right, good. It's a wait, hold on. What God is saying is that now you and I are where he lives in the world. We're his temple. And this is the beginning of the church, a people who trust in Jesus, who are God's dwelling place in the midst of the world and are the way that the world gets to meet with this God. So that brings us to the next point. And that begins this long season that we actually still live in today called the Age of Tension. The Age of Tension, where God's kingdom has come within the hearts of people, but it's not everywhere around us yet. 
And so the, the Christians quickly find that out when there is goodness in their hearts, but then they got this flesh that doesn't want to do good stuff, right? That's why we feel that to this day, that God by His Spirit wants to lead us, but so does this dirty, rotten thing we haul around with us. It wants to be in charge too, and we feel that. We feel that, that with the coming of Jesus, and the, the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, a new way of life has begun in the world but it's not here fully yet. We're still waiting for it to be everywhere. And so we feel it in ourselves and we feel it in the world. That while we feel and we experience the peace of God, the world is not peaceful. Amen? The world looks chaotic and it's, it's full of strife and brokenness. And so into this world, the Christians start to live. And we read about in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament. And we still live in it today. And during this age of tension, the new leaders of the church, instead of the prophets, are the apostles. Apostles means sent ones. And these are the ones God uses to speak outward to the world his message at the very beginning. That he sends out these apostles. And two of the most known ones are Peter and Paul. And Paul, as he goes out as an apostle, he goes into the broken world. And not just to the Jews who've been waiting for the Messiah, but to every other people group that he runs into in the Roman Empire. And he says to everybody, listen, he's not just the king of the Jews. He's a savior of the world. He's come to rescue you from your own dark heart, from your own slavery to sin, from your own imprisonment to death. He wants to rescue you. And people all over the known world start to trust in Jesus and these apostles are, are passing on the teachings of Jesus, preaching the gospel about Jesus, and helping these churches to know, wait a minute, what do we do when people are way different, but they both trust in Jesus? How do we live together? So these apostles, they don't just speak, they also write. And the epistles, when you read those, uh, beginning with Romans through the rest of the New Testament, we have these things called epistles or letters. These apostles write to Christians to help them know, wait, what do we do? What's true about Jesus? Because we hear a lot of things out here. What's true about Jesus? What does it actually look like to follow Jesus? And how in the world do we love each other when we are so different? When we are so different, how do we love each other as Christ calls us to? And how do we represent him to the world so the epistles are the apostles saying, hey, these are the ways of Jesus for you to live as a community. And the last piece before I close is this, is in that age of tension, one of the major things we see is persecution. That as these Christians start to go out and share the gospel with others, they do not get met with a bunch of hugs. They get met with beatings. They get met with mockery. They get met with rejection. They get met with the sword. They get met with the flame. They get met with martyrdom. And as they go out, we see this happening all throughout. Initially, the first Christians, they're, they're the same people who killed Jesus, who hated Jesus, they hate them too. And so they end up getting driven away from families and beaten or stoned to death like a man named Stephen in the book of Acts. As they go out to the world, uh, people who follow Jesus, they experience rejection from their neighbors and their families. As those people don't believe in Jesus, but they do. And it's a radically different life if you follow Jesus than if you don't. So there's hostility there. And then a third thing that we see is actually government persecution under the Roman Empire. As Christians, early Christians, are burned, pour, covered in oil and lit on fire and burned. 
They're fed to wild beasts and, and devoured as for sport in the Colosseum in Rome. They're driven out of their homes, separated from families, but they refuse to compromise. And we read about this throughout the New Testament. But the anchor for all of them goes back to the song we sang earlier, that knowing how the story ends, that central to the New Testament is that the Bible's story doesn't just tell the story up to the end of reading the Bible. It looks to the end of the story of all time. That it looks forward, that all these early Christians have what we have. That the story of the Bible is a story still going, lived forward towards a perfect end of restoration, where what was lost in the Garden of Eden is given back to you and me. Amen. It's given back to you and me that while in this world we are given the gift of God at home in us, the end of the story is us at home with God in a perfect world with no evil, no brokenness, no chaos, no babble, no strife, no abuse, no rejection, none of that stuff, perfectly restored. And that's where we will spend eternity. And from the very beginning up until now, the Christians have said, that is such a good hope that I can endure all things right now. All right, there you go. So, that's the story of the Bible. Now listen. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're going to come into a time of response, all right? And we're going we're gonna to have a song of worship in a moment here. We're coming to a time of response. And before I say anything else, let me just say this. Uh, you'll see there's places for communion on the sides. I encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to come to that table to remember the centerpiece of this entire story is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who absorbed all the penalty for our sins in order to give us the gift we could never deserve. Perfect peace with God. Perfect peace with God. Of forgiveness and reconciliation with Him. And also during this time, if the Lord is pulling on your heart and you, or you brought a burden in here today, please come up here and let's pray together. Let's pray together that God could do a wonderful work in your heart. If you're just saying, like the people of the Bible, help. Let's join together and pray. Um, and then thirdly, again, there's, for those who like to give, many give online, but those who give in person, those baskets are in the back where we can give our offering, again, as worship to the Lord. But to set us up for response, Jesus tells a parable once in Luke chapter 15. And, Luke, and he, he really, this parable is a story of the whole Bible. And what we find in the story of the Bible does not just make us smarter. It invites us into that story ourselves. And the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, Jesus is sitting at a table with people like me, broken sinners. And some of the religious people look and say, oh, Jesus, what are you doing at a table with people like that? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And he tells them really the story of humanity, the story the Bible tells in the big story. He says, hey, there was once a father who owned everything and had given everything to his son. And his son had just had to trust the father, that the father knew what was good and what was evil, and obey the father. And instead the son said, Father, I wish you were dead. Give me what I want now. I want to be in charge of my own life. And that son took it, took his inheritance that God gave him, went out into the world, and squandered it all. He blew it on sin and brokenness, and he chose chaos, and he found himself at the end of himself having squandered everything and created nothing but a life of chaos. And that son was there and he's, he's looking at the, he's feeding pigs as just the lowest class you could be at that time in society. He's feeding the pigs and he's looking at the slop and thinking, man, I would eat that right now. I have nothing left to trust in in myself. What am I going to do? And he thinks to himself, 
Well, I have a father that I know used to offer me everything, and I was his beloved son. I know I'll never get that back, but maybe if I run back to him, he'll let me be a slave there and give me three meals a day. Maybe a cloak to wear and a roof over my head. So the son starts walking back. And he's walking back. And as he's going back, you know what he's doing? Help! Help! That son comes back. And what he doesn't know is that every moment since that son left the beautiful garden of that home, every moment that father has been seeking him with his love, that father's been looking out at the horizon saying, hey, just let me hear you whisper help. Just let me hear you whisper help. I want to bring you home to be with me forever. I want to restore you. But that son doesn't know it. And he's come walking back. And the story in Luke 15 says that the father looks out and he saw on the far horizon a little silhouette of a, of a, of a person walking. And he thought, wait, is that? And as soon as he recognized that's my son, he's here to say help. He takes off sprinting. An act that no father in those days would do is undignified. He has to hike up his cloak and he runs and he overtakes the son before the son can even say anything. And he embraces him. And that son finds in this father one who wants to restore everything he lost, not just a little bit. And that son experiences grace. As the father gives him back a cloak and gives him back a ring and gives him back his inheritance, says, hey, this is your place again. You're here again. You're back. I'm restoring it. And that's the story of the Bible. And it's a story you and I are invited into. Are you at the end of yourself? Are you at the end of yourself? You're like, I am so sick of trying to figure out how to fix this life for myself. I got nothing left. Help. Are you, are you thinking in your head that, hey, God would only have me back as some kind of servant. He would never call me his beloved because he knows what I've done. Can I ask you to see yourself in that story and instead to not, de- not decide for yourself but let God decide how he sees you? Because he calls you his beloved. He wants to restore you. And so the story of the Bible is our story too. So I want to pray for us and I want to encourage you as you come to the Lord's table, you are doing something that's been done for 2,000 years by people who believe in this story and who find themselves in this story. That the Jesus who's the hero of the biblical story is the hero of their own life story as well. Or come to the altar and let's seek him together. We're going to sing the song in a few moments, gratitude. That's really what it's about. Lord, here I am. What can I say except thank you, God? So Lord, as we respond right now, Lord, I thank you for the mercy and the grace that you extend us. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and would pull us into the story of the Bible, that we would see ourselves within these pages and you would draw us to you, your arms of restoration, your grace to reconcile us to yourself and redeem our lives completely. Lord, may we not decide for ourselves how you think of us, but may we receive the gift of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.